Welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast, where we talk to great leaders who are influencing the next generation. Jeff, I have two numbers for you, a seven and a two. I mean, what do these numbers mean, Rob? These numbers are our Enneagram numbers, and I'd be willing to bet that our listeners couldn't decide which one we are. Maybe, maybe not. So which one are you? Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we roll the show, and we'll let Beth tell us. We're going to let Beth McCord tell us who we are, because she's awesome. Beth is your Enneagram coach on the social media. She's incredible. She knows us better than anybody else I've ever sat down with. And I think you guys are going to learn so much about your type, about the Enneagram, and how to relate with others based on Enneagram types. Let's roll it. Here's Beth. Well, Beth, welcome to the Collectives Co. podcast. Beth is uh, your Enneagram coach uh, on socials and my Enneagram coach, Rob. So my Enneagram coach. I mean, Enneagram sorry, coach. This is okay. <laughs> so it's good to have her with us. Um, Enneagram may be new to some people, and but it is really popular right now. Beth, can you just give us an idea where the Enneagram comes from? Oh, man, that's the million-dollar question, right? So it's been around for over 2,000 years, and the symbol, it's a nine-pointed star, has been utilized with lots of different people, belief systems, um, either, you know, from Christianity to other belief systems. So it's been used in a lot of different sectors. So we really just can't pinpoint where it came from. But what we do know is it kind of came into the United States in the 1970s, where it was really more paired up with um, modern-day psychology and personality mm-hmm. typology. That's kind of when it really kind of entered into United States, um, but I would say more specifically into the kind of uh, Christian world in the last two and a half years or so is really when it started taking off. Now, I've been using it since the early 2000s, so some of us have known it for longer um, and using it from a gospel center perspective, but really, by and large, it's just been the last couple of years where it's really kind of been a, more of a trending factor. And I think I think even for myself and Jeff, you know, even you heard in his own story, it wasn't until last year that he actually kind of discovered the Enneagram. But I mean, um, since it's been around so long, and especially in the last couple of years, like you said, uh, in Christian circles, I mean, I've heard everything from, you know, it's a demonic symbol, the nine, the nine pointed star to um, it's just leaning too heavily into popular psychology. Um, but, you know, certainly myself, I can, I can personally attest that you know, the communication, the relationships that have been improved as a result of going through the Enneagram. Um, how did you actually get involved with it? Yeah, yeah. So um, back in the early 2000s, my husband was in seminary and we had two little kids. And I don't know what you guys are like when you have two little kids and you're newly married. It's like, I don't understand myself. I don't understand you. I don't understand my kids. So I kept falling in the same common pitfalls time and time again. And just it was frustrated and discouraged. Um, and it was at that time that a friend of ours showed us Richard Rohr's book, The Christian Perspective to the Enneagram. Um, not, uh, it, it can be kind of a hard read. It's really in-depth. The Enneagram it can be a very complex system. And so at your, your Enneagram coach, what we're really trying to do is take this very complex system and make it easy to understand from a gospel-centered perspective. So back then, for some reason, I just could understand it. And it's, you know, I've been with it for almost 20 years. And what 
to how to understand the Enneagram for those that are really new to it is literally it's your internal GPS. It is just letting you know when you're veering off course, your best path, and then what it looks like for us to become more like Christ at our healthiest trajectory. And so the Enneagram is just a tool. It is uh, neither good nor bad. It really depends on who's using it, right? Mm. It's just like a hammer. A hammer is just a tool and it, in the right, in the hands of the right person, it can create wonderful things. And then in the hands of the wrong person, it can have destruction. So we're using the Enneagram to point people back to Christ, point people back to how God created them and to be more like Christ. So the Enneagram is just illuminating your heart condition, letting you know, are you aligned with the truth of the gospel, misaligned or out of alignment with the truth of the gospel? And so that we can come back into surrender and dependence on what's true from the gospel versus just our, our own ways of thinking, which can really lead us astray. So Rob, I'm a, I'm a two, which is, is classified as the helper. You are a seven, a seven. So when you took the test, was it like somebody had read your journals or diary? Hilariously. So, I mean, it was, it was really funny. The first time I kind of read a good description of a seven in a context where they were obviously bringing it from a, from a gospel center perspective. And it was, it was like that GPS roadmap that you were talking about, Beth, and um, just really kind of understanding, okay, this is why I think the way I do. This is why I communicate the way I do. This is why I feel the way I do. This is why when I'm stressed, I do these things. Um, not, not specifically or just, you know, exclusively, but I think, you know, for me, it was just, it was an eye-opening experience. It was, so it was exceptionally almost exciting and hurtful at the same time. <laughs> it was like somebody like, how do you know me? Like, how do you know who I am? So Beth, we know what we are. Can, can you walk us through each of the nine types so our listeners can, can maybe pick out themselves in this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when you're trying to find your main type or helping someone else to find their main type, there are a lot of assessments out there and some are good and some aren't good, but no matter which assessment you take, you have to realize that those are just guiding posts. They're just to guide you. They don't name you because really the Enneagram is an internal work. It's your own work you have to do in finding why you think, feel, and behave in particular ways. And that's what the Enneagram is all about, the heart motive which is why it's really exciting for us Christians to use because that's what God cares about, right? Is our heart motivations. Mm, yeah. um, now we can all set aside the Enneagram at any point of any day because ultimately it's a gospel that brings transformation, not the Enneagram. The Enneagram is just showing us where our heart condition is. So to, in order to find your main type, you want to find the type that has your core motivations. The reason is, is that we use all nine types to varying degrees. Um, there's lots of reasons to this. And I know that you guys have studied it well enough that you kind of know what those are. We won't probably have time to go into all that, but some people can go, well, I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and that's understandable, but we want to find a type that has your core motivations and the core motivations is there's four of them. There's the core fear, what you're always running away from the core desire, what you're always running and trying to obtain, you know, get uh, the core weakness. Think of, and that's also called the passion or the deadly sin. But we call it the core weakness because it's like the thorn in your side, your Achilles heel, what you're always stumbling over. And the thing that we definitely need to come back and cling to the cross over and over for. And then there's the core longing, the message your heart has always longed to hear or thirst for, which we really point back to Jeremiah 2.13 in that regard. But for today, we'll just 
briefly highlight, I mean, so briefly highlight all nine types, just to give people a little sneak peek into all of them. So are you ready? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Let's roll. Well, here, okay. Let me flip my page over take notes here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the type one is the moral perfectionist and they fear being bad, evil, corruptible, and wrong. They desire to have integrity, to be good, moral, and right. Now their core weakness is resentment. And this is where they repress anger because it can lead to them feeling that they're doing wrong or bad or evil, but they have an one loud inner critic and it's like a megaphone at their ear and it's constantly berating them and pointing out what's wrong, whether inside themselves or the world. So they're constantly wanting things to be fixed, but they think everyone sees the world the same way they do. And then people, let's say, pass up a piece of paper on the floor or something that needs to be fixed. And they feel like, why didn't that person do that? Like they saw it, right? And so that can build up resentment because others they think are bypassing the responsibility. Um, but what they need to learn is that no, people don't see the world the way they do. And they don't have that one loud inner critic the way that they have it. Now we all have some inner critic, but not the way that the type one has it. So that can build resentment up in their heart. What they desire or what they long to hear is you are good. And when we, when I'm speaking to people specifically about the gospel centered perspective of the Enneagram, it's the core longing is what Christ absolutely satisfies with us. So it's not that the type one is good in and of themselves. It's that Christ was good on their behalf. So the sins have been removed and his righteousness has been put on them. So when God looks at them, he sees you are good based off of what Christ did for you. And that's where things change is when that core longing, when we realize it's been satisfied, it changes everything for us. So the type two, now are you ready for this one? <laughs> yeah, I hurt my feelings here, Beth. Exactly. So the type two is a supportive advisor and they fear being rejected, unwanted, unloved, dispensable, and inconsequential. What they long or the desire, sorry, is to be appreciated, loved, and wanted. Now, their core weakness is pride, and this is where they deny their own needs and emotions and solely focus on the needs of others and their other people's feelings because they fear that if, because they think everyone else sees other people's feelings and needs, and if I don't move in and help, someone's going to notice it, and they're going to think I'm selfish, and then they're going to reject me. So I need to move in to other people's lives because I also want to know that they appreciate me, and they love me, and they need me. And so that's what they're striving for. So they put aside their own and focus solely on others. And they have this really great superpower of really knowing what others need. And so they move very confidently into other people's lives, sometimes even, with, in, even when people aren't really wanting it. And what they long to hear is you are wanted and loved. Does that sound right? It is, it is dead on. It is my, listen, if I have a fault at all, it's that I put everybody else's to-do list ahead of my own. Like I am like, if my wife is doing dishes, I will get up from what I'm doing and go dry dishes rather than finishing the work I'm working on. It's, it's such a, I don't know yeah. if it's a flaw, but the hard wiring is like, it's hard for me not to help. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really a challenge. That's probably why I'm sitting here with you at this table right now. And then well, he comes into my office every day and says, do you want me here? <laughs> I'm like, yes, Jeff, I want you here. Yes, <laughs> that's not really that's true. That's not true, but... <laughs> But here's the thing, all of our struggles are also our strengths. We right, right. just need to learn that you, we can't obtain. So in Jeremiah 2.13, it talks about how we have forsaken God, the spring of living water, 
and Doug's cisterns, cisterns that are broken and don't hold water. So each of us has this core longing that we're trying to fill up, but we do it with these cisterns or these jars of clay that are broken. And when you fill up a jar or a glass that has a crack in it, it's not going to satisfy. But Christ is the spring of living water. Yeah. So for any of our types, once we allow Christ to satisfy our core longing, we then give that same strength and, and wonderful aspects mm-hmm. out of an overflow which blesses others versus the opposite where we're trying to get something from others that we can't ever obtain. Yeah, that's so, good. That's great. Okay. So the type three is a successful achiever and they fear being exposed, thought of as incompetent, inefficient, worthless, and they fear being embarrassed um, or doing something, you know, bad for their image. They want to know that they have high status and respect. They're admirable, successful, and valuable. And where they have the core weakness is deceit. Now the threes are, they deceive themselves into believing that they're only the image they present to others. Mm -hmm. And so they feel like they have to embellish the truth so that others will see like a more shining image because to them, think of like the, you know, my husband was a place kicker in um, college and there's the saying, you're as good as your last kick. Well, in the threes mind, you're as good as your last achievement or your last success. So even when they check that thing off the list and they're like, yes, instantly they have to go to the next thing and mm. then the next thing and the next thing. And they're always looking for, does someone notice what I did? So you'll find threes that will kind of um, maybe some people call it bragging to them. They're showing you their resume either for the day or their life because they believe that you won't be able to love them unless you know their successes. And so you can then understand why they're giving you their resume um, because they want to know, do you know I'm valuable? You, do you have reason to love me? Whereas what they long to hear is you are loved for simply being you. They would love to know that they don't have to achieve. And the greatest thing about Christ is his achievements are now our achievements. And so we don't have to earn love. We already get it from him naturally. So we're loved for just who we are. And I didn't even tell you on the two, Twos want, are wanted and lo- are to be heard that you are wanted and loved. And Christ pursues the twos and all of us with unconditional love. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be selfless. In mm. fact, he saw us as sinners and selfish, right? Romans 5, 8. And he pursued us anyway. So it is unconditional. And he's the hound of heaven. And he wants you with him. Now, the type four is the romantic individualist. And these people fear being inadequate, emotionally cut off, plain, mundane. Um, They desire to be special, unique, and their most authentic self. Now, they uh, struggle with the core weakness of envy. And this envy is that they feel that there's something foundationally flawed or defective in them, and that others possess qualities that they lack. So I tell people, it's kind of like, if we're all a puzzle, you know, and how at Christmas you're putting this puzzle together, it's going to be awesome. And everyone's just going to be amazed at how pretty and how hard you did, how hard of a work you did. And then you get down to the last piece and it's missing. And it kind of like ruins the whole puzzle, right? It's like, oh, this could have been so great. Well, that's how four feels about themselves inside. Mm. That there's something wow. missing and there's something defective and flawed in them. And they're constantly on the search to find their most unique and authentic self to present to others so that there's something for others to love. So what they long to hear is you are seen and loved for exactly who you are, special and unique. And when they realize that that's what Christ offers them, that he created them uniquely in their mother's womb, 
there's nothing flawed or missing. Now, of course, we all need Christ, right? We're flawed in that way. But he didn't make a mistake in creating them uniquely and special the way they are. Now, the type five is the investigative thinker, and they fear being annihilated, invaded, not existing, being ignorant, having obligations placed on them, and their internal energy being absolutely depleted. What they desire is to be knowledgeable, capable, and competent. Now, to understand a five is to understand avarice. Now, avarice usually means greedy with money. That's not what it means here in the Enneagram. In the Enneagram, it's talking about that the fives feel that they lack inner resources and that too much interaction with others, so interpersonal interaction, will lead to catastrophic depletion. Mm. So what they tend to do is they withhold themselves from contact with others and minimize mm. their needs. So think of them as being a cell phone. You know how you plug in your cell phone and as you've had it for a lot longer period of time, it like just doesn't charge right, you know? And you're like, oh, this isn't working. Well, that's how a five feels about themselves. They wake up every day and they look at their phone. There's 20 to 25% battery life for interacting with others. Now that doesn't mean they don't have enough physical energy. Now some feel like it, but this is interacting energy. And so if you only have 20% with your phone all day, you're gonna be very careful of how you're gonna use your phone, right? And then at the end of the day, let's say you have five hours left and you only have 5% left, you're not gonna be very happy if someone takes your phone from you and starts streaming something live. Mm. So you'll see with a five, when you intrude on their space and they only have so much energy, you're gonna find a lot more stronger boundaries and pushback from them. And it's not so much that they don't wanna be with people, they have to conserve this inner energy that they have. Now how they replenish it is by having time alone to process their thoughts and feelings. So the more heads up you can give a five and the more space that they can process and think, the more you're going to see them come alive. Does mm. that make sense? It does. How now? Are there a lot of fives? I mean, it's hard to gauge. You know how many of each type there are, but yeah, it's really hard to gauge actually. Um, one because fives are going to be more withdrawn for the most part, and so how do we know, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you're going to find different types representing in different ways, you know, and so it's just, it's hard to know. Now, what the fives long to hear is your needs are not a problem. To them, they feel like their needs are like these huge, massive boulders. And why would they have you take on that boulder when it's already hard for them? And what we want them to know is that Christ is God Almighty and your needs are not a problem. And he delights in supporting and replenishing you right where you're at. Right. Now, the type six is the loyal guardian. And they fear fear itself, being without support, guidance, and security. And they fear being targeted and physically uh, abandoned. What they desire is security, guidance, and support. And to understand a five, or six, sorry, is to understand anxiety. Now, any type can be anxious, but this is where they're scanning the horizon for what possibly could happen, especially worst case scenarios, and trying to prevent it. And how this starts to happen is they have an inner committee. Remember we talked about the ones having one loud inner critic? Well, the sixes have an inner committee. Think about parliament in England, right? There's a person speaking, but then all of a sudden, everyone else is yelling and chiming in and <laughs> saying who knows what. And it's like, how is anything getting done? There's so much chaos and confusion happening. That's what it feels like for a six. So they might think, oh, I'm going to go do this today. And then all of a sudden, the inner committee is like, well, what about this? What about that? Did you think of this? Did you plan for that? But that could happen over here too. And so all of a sudden, there's this 
inner confusion and chaos that they feel they have to go outside themselves to find resources and a trusted system or person that can give them guidance. Mm. What they long to hear is you are safe and secure. Now, sevens, are you ready for this? I'm ready, let's mm -hmm. have it. Let's hear, I wanna know all, all that right. Yes, so sevens are the entertaining optimists and they fear being deprived, trapped in emotional pain, limited, bored, and definitely missing out on something fun. They long, <laughs> <laughs> they long to be happy, fully content, and satisfied. Now, to understand a seven is to understand their core weakness of gluttony. Now, this isn't just about food, even though they do love to taste a variety of things. This is that they feel a great emptiness inside and they have an insatiable desire to fill themselves up with stimulation and excitement and all fun things in life. But here's where the problem comes in. It's like they have this empty bucket inside that has holes in it. And they feel like I have got to fill this up. Kind of like, you know, hunger pains almost like mm -hmm. I am starving. And they, they're trying to fill, fill, fill with all this excitement, stimulation and future thinking and planning. But then it all spills out at the bottom and they feel more desperate. And so this goes on and on and on. It's also like, a, let's say a kid's starving and everyone has cotton candy and it looks amazing. And you're going to be so satisfied once you eat all this cotton candy. But as we know, that doesn't satisfy, right? So the world looks like it's promising all these great things for the seven, but the only thing that can actually satisfy is Christ himself. And so what they long to hear is you will be taken care of. And only Christ is the spring of living water. And he is only that can bring that full satisfaction and a content heart. And then and everything else is like the big cherry on top. It's like, oh, well, this is fun now because now I feel satisfied. And this is just an extra overflow. How did that sound, Rob? Does that sound like you? Uh, I, was, I was trying not to tear up. You were reading my mail again. It's not <laughs> like I'm new to the Enneagram, but still, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to hear sometimes. But yeah. I think it's, it's, um, it's also good to hear, good to be reminded. So, yeah. Well, and that's what I hope that people, as they're listening, they recognize that the Enneagram is a non-judgmental friend. It reads your right. mail and it tells you just like it is, which can be really, really hard. But that's why we use it from a gospel-centered perspective, because, yes, I'm going to point out all the things that you long for, no matter what type you are and how you feel you're not getting satisfied. But that's where I get to bring the good news of the gospel right. and how Christ absolutely does satisfy. And that's where real hope and change lies. And we all know that logically, but now we're dialing into specifically who you are and what your needs are. And that Christ has already answered that. And so the more we can dial that into quote unquote, someone's mother tongue or dialect, the more their heart can hear it and resonate mm. it and then mm. move forward with growth. Great. Well, we awesome. got two more. Yeah. We've yeah. got type eight, the protective challenger and the eights, they fear being harmed, betrayed, uh, controlled, vulnerable, and definitely left to the mercy of injustice. They desire to protect themselves and those in their very small inner circle, and they will definitely go to bat for them. Now, to understand them is to understand the core weakness of lust or excess. And this is where they're constantly desiring intensity, control, and power, and willfully pushing themselves through life. Now, AIDS are what we call snowplows, because snowplows up in the Midwest, where I grew up in Kansas City or in the North, we need these massive diesels, right? Like not just the mm -hmm. Ford 150s with a little shovel on the front, not that. 
we need these massive diesels to push the snow off the highways and roads so that we can get to the places we need to get to. So we absolutely need eights to plow a path for us. And they are so remarkable. They've got big hearts, they're generous. But at times, just like in the blizzard, a diesel truck may not see all the cars on the side of the road and start nicking them. <laughs> and maybe unfortunately plowing over them. And so for the eight to understand, hey, we need you to absolutely do what you've been created to do. But we also need you to see who's in front and tell them, hey, get behind me. I'll plow the path for you. To be very mindful of how they go about plowing is so vital. So great representation that we think, of course, we can't name what a person's type is because it's an inner work. But we um, speculate that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was an eight, and he did an amazing job plowing a path for the civil rights movement, which, of course, that was not easy. But you, we can see how that tenacity, that power, that push, that drive can be used so well for people. Now, what they long to hear is you will not be betrayed. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ was the most betrayed. He absolutely knows what that feels like from even remember when he was two years old and they were trying to kill all of the two year olds. I mean, right. from that point on, he was always, people were always looking to betray him in some way, mm -hmm. but he knows how to have your back, how to be your stronghold, how to be your shield, your rock, your cleft, your protector. And so the aides can absolutely rest in him. Now, last but not least is my type, the type nine, the peaceful mediator. And we fear being in conflict, tension, discord, being overlooked, and any um, inharmonious relationship. What we desire is inner stability and peace of mind. But to understand us is the core weakness of sloth. Now, this isn't a physical laziness, though nines do love their comfy, cozy <laughs> retreats and hammocks and stuff like that. We actually can be some of the busiest on the Enneagram. We speculate that Reagan and Lincoln were type nines. So I'm an extremely busy person, but what the sloth is representing is an internal not knowing. It's a fog where we do not know what we want because we've always gone along to get along with others, to accommodate, to agree with, to try to keep the peace. And we also think that our presence and voice doesn't matter that much for our opinions. So why stand firm on it? Why not just go along? That'll be so much easier. But doing that actually creates the very conflict that we're trying to avoid, right? But we all have our own self-sabotage in our own ways. But what the nine needs to know and what they long to hear is your presence matters. And that's what Christ came to demonstrate that we matter so much to him that he left his throne and went through all that he went through so that he could bring us back into his fold, into his flock, because we matter that much to him. And there you go. All nine types. Wow. That's amazing. That's yeah. I mean, so I, I feel like my household's like a joke when I start because I ha my wife's a one, I'm a two, I have a son who's a two, I have a daughter that's a three, a daughter that's a six, a son that's a seven, and a a son that's a nine. <laughs> So there's like, like, it's like a walking joke of Enneagram. Like what happens when we walk into a house is this is such a, a good revelation for me. Cause I can see mm. the fear and then the desire as, as you walk through those, I go, yeah, that makes yeah. sense to, to this one and that one. Um, and so in interpersonal relationships in your, you got a new book coming out called becoming us and it's utilizing the Enneagram in a marriage context. Um, yes. We work with college students 
one of the primary conversations we're in is, is young adults getting engaged, getting married. What about the Enneagram can bring a benefit in sort of a marital relationship or even a dating relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the great thing about the Enneagram is it's going to help you to understand like what we just talked about. What is the core motivations? And those core motivations that I just touched upon is absolutely key in understanding why your relationships are either going well or why they're derailing. Because when one of you, let's say even just the two of you right here, like if you get activated, it's probably going to be based off of the core motivations, something going mm -hmm. wrong. And you're going to base off your, then your behavior, your affect, your tone, body language off of how you got activated. Now, the more you're aware of how you get activated and you're aligning your heart with the truth of the gospel, the more you're going to be able to remain, let's say, emotionally uh, sober. And you're going to be able to react in a way that is beneficial for the relationship. But if you get activated and you're not aligning with the truth of the gospel and you're just kind of misaligned and doing it in your own strength, you're going to react out in a way that could be harmful, if not destructive to the relationship. So by understanding the core motivations and what we say is use the Enneagram like a rumble strip on the highway. You know, when you're veering off course, you're about ready to land into mm -hmm. that common pitfall, allow the Enneagram to wake you up. Like, hey, if you keep thinking this way or doing that, you're going to land in that same common pitfall that you do time and time again. Use this opportunity to align your heart with the truth of the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in a new trajectory. So with your college students, as they think through their friendships, their dating relationships, who they're going to marry, even their relationships with their parents, this all will help them understand relational dynamics to that degree. Now the, the book is focused on marriage, but the back of the book really will show you how each it's like a roadmap for each type there's six mm -hmm. pages on each of the types it lets you understand how they are in conflict when they're how they're communicating how to encourage them how the gospel meets them and so all college students can use this with even their relationships whether it's friendship their teachers you name it in understanding why they do what they do but for themselves but also why the other person does what they do and that's going to be really helpful in what we call the dance. So it's the dance is two Enneagram types and how they interact together mm. and understanding how you dance is super important. Even just like the two of you being a type two and a seven. Well, you know, if let's say you're wanting to help everyone, but that's preventing him from going out and having fun, he's going to get activated and you're, you're going to start to feel it. But if he, he owns it, and knows it and, and communicates it with clarity, but not a reaction and just says, hey, I can see why you want to be helpful. I'm feeling a little trapped here. Is there something we can do to kind of navigate this, you know, for the both of us? Then that's a whole different conversation instead of someone just kind of flying off the handle or getting upset or dodging the relationship. So the Enneagram is going to help give new communication and understanding where there wasn't before. Jeff, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. Um, no, I, just wow. kidding. I didn't know we were dancing, but I, now I know, I guess. Oh, man. Uh, Beth, I, I have one. I know Jeff has another question coming, but um, I'm, I'm very interested. I mean, kind of circling back to the beginning. I mean, the Enneagram has been around a very long time. And it, it's something, uh, you know, again, in popular psychology that has been used. Now it's really creeping into, and I think in positive ways, 
sort of the church atmosphere, the church world. But I think there's an underlying sort of reason or justification for that, not just because it's another, quote, personality test like Myers-Briggs or the disc profile or whatever. So what are you seeing that's happening on the ground in churches, in the faith community, that is really driving this need to understand or to engage with the Enneagram, maybe different than we've seen any other personality profile sort of test, um, at least in my experience to this point. So what do you think some of those factors are? Yeah, there's several things I kind of want to point out. I think first and foremost is that people want to be known, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be seen and heard and known and helped. And this is finally something that gets to the core of who we are. And a lot of us have a hard time even bringing language to why we think, feel, and believe the way we do and behave. And this gives that language so we can have that deeper conversation with one another, but also then to have the empathy and compassion understanding of the other person. So it just allows relationships to flourish. But also what I see that really scares me is how people are misusing the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important factor that we need all ages, but I think, um, yeah, all ages, is that you cannot use the Enneagram as a sword or a shield. You can't go around saying, oh, you're being such a six, or you're doing that seven thing again, um, or making fun, or being sarcastic, or put down, because it's the most exposing anyone is ever going to be. Mm. You know, those dreams that people have, like they show up to school, and they're like half-dressed, you know, and it's like, oh. well, that's like what the Enneagram is like, and so if as God's children who were created by in his image, we need to also use the Enneagram in that way to honor and to support and to encourage one another. So not using it as either a dagger, sword, machete, you name it. <laughs> don't use it like that. But hammer. also yeah, a hammer. Yeah. Don't use it as a shield where you're like, well, I'm a nine. That's just what I do. You're going to have to deal with it. No, God calls us to become more like Christ. And there are a lot of aspects in each personality type that we need to own. We need to ask for forgiveness from our Heavenly Father first, but also maybe from others. And then do our own work in growing in our likeness of Christ by surrendering and depending on the Holy Spirit to do the work in and through us. Mm. And so that's one thing I see a lot is the misuse of the Enneagram. And it only is actually going to bring more destruction in the body of Christ than helpfulness. But the Enneagram, because it's getting to the heart of why we do, so the heart intention, that's why it's such a beautiful gift to use with um, our Christian faith is because God says he doesn't care about the outward, right? The outside of the jar. He cares about the inside. And this is going to help us. It's like a barometer or a thermometer. Like, how am I doing? Am I sick? Do I have a temperature? And it lets us know how our heart is doing. Are we aligned? Mm -hmm misaligned or out of alignment with the truth of the gospel and not to bring shame and self-condemnation and fear. In fact, it's the opposite because Christ took care of those. It's to bring us back into understanding that we are his most beloved and cherished child and we can rest in his finished work on our behalf to change and transform us from the inside out. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, what I think I appreciate about what, what the work Beth is doing a lot, there's a lot of Enneagram stuff out there. Um, but your spin back to the gospel has been really valuable as I followed you on social media and engaged in conversations. Um, and I think you said something that was so critical is it's giving language to us to know ourselves and others. Um, like all of a sudden when I took the test and, and I was like, 
oh my goodness, that that makes complete sense. And then like my wife took the test and I was like, oh my goodness, that makes complete sense. All of a sudden the conversation changed because mm. suddenly we had language surrounding who we were and we knew why we acted and responded in certain ways. And so, um, so business idea, you can take and run with this. I've always needed like Enneagram flashcards, like where I can just flip through like the key motivator and like, oh, there are seven. So I need to know how to respond here. Um, so you can take that. Oh, they just give me 10% credit or whatever you want to do there. Um, yeah, awesome. Tell us the best use of the Enneagram in interpersonal relationships. And, and, and we talk about the faith community, but... Yeah. But how can we really take these tools, which they are, and use them to, to better ourselves and others around us? Yeah. I think the first thing is to recognize that most of the time we are assuming incorrectly what others are thinking, mm. feeling, and behaving, or why. We call that a suicide because we are assuming in a way that can bring harm and even destruction to our relationships. Mm. The reason we do it is because we think people see the world the way we see it, but they don't. And so think about the three of us, all three of us right here are different types. And let's say we're, it's like we're wearing different colored sunglasses. I'm wearing purple, Rob, you're wearing red, and Jeff, you're wearing, let's see, you're two, teal. Let's just say, that's the colors on my, that's the colors on my, uh, it's more of a blue teal, right? Okay. All right. <laughs> a sophisticated teal. Yes. So, but we're seeing the world from very different lenses and, but we assume everyone's seeing the world through the same lens. And so when people don't do it or think the way we think we get frustrated and upset or hurt. So if we can come to relationships, actually assuming that we probably don't know what the other person yeah. is thinking or feeling or how they're seeing it and asking clarifying questions, but also giving clarifying statements. So for instance, the three of us were, let's say if we we're going to go hang out, I could let you know, like, Hey, I know myself well enough to know that this is where I'm going to struggle, or this is how I'm thinking. And you guys probably think of it differently. So can you let me know how you're seeing this situation at hand? And it gives space for people. It's not an attack. It's not a defense. It's mm. a curiosity. And it helps us to then have, in a sense, a common starting place for conversation versus either pushing or defending or stonewalling or accusations. It, it starts from a totally different viewpoint of compassion and understanding and empathy. So that would be one thing is just clarifying questions and clarifying statements. That's good. I think the assuming incorrectly is, is valuable. I, I know I can be guilty as charged that I walk into a situation and I presume everybody thinks like I think. Um, and the shift for me with this is like, Hey, you don't think like I think, so I can't presume you saw what I saw or feel what I feel. I'm a, I'm the feeler. So I feel everybody in the room. And, and yeah. so it's, that's a, a resource or something I've had to learn to do and still, and as you say, the work, the inner work still learning to do to not assume that everybody in the room sees or feels how I feel. Um, that's been a challenge for me. I mean, um, the twos are like, we're high feelers. Like, and meanwhile, I'm over here, like, how can I create the most fun office on campus? So, <laughs> as the campus pastor, like I want my office to be cooler than anyone else's. I want students to come and have fun and relax. And I yeah, just, we, we got, we got issues. I got, I got issues. I got to work through stuff. Yeah. We so. got to work through some stuff. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask kind of an odd question. Um, 
so Ryan O'Neill, Sleeping at Last, created these ah. Enneagram songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I played the song, I played Rob's song for him earlier today, and I played my two. Um, it makes me cry every time I listen to my two song. How accurate is the lyrics and the, the mood of those songs compared to what the Enneagram actually is? It is spot on. Actually, I, he, um, he, uh, oh man. So I'm a nine with an eight wing and eight came up before nine. And when I listened to eight, I wept because it really felt like he reached in and grabbed my heart and just squeezed it (laughs) until tears started pouring on my face. And I'm not an easy crier, but he really captured that. And then when nine came out, I even cried harder and I wasn't, I still wasn't expecting it. I kind of thought maybe, but absolutely for me, it was hands down. And it's one of those things, like when you find your type and you listen to his songs, he did such a masterful job, not just in the lyrics, but in the actual music to mm-hmm. capture that type so well. Mm-hmm. And the artwork. So I see myself as an elephant. And when the artwork came out, I wept like baby again. Oh, like, wow. Yes. I'm like totally like elephants have been my like go-to animal um, because we're gentle, docile, loving community but man if you get in our way we're coming and you bet (laughs) we are charging and so that's how I see myself with this Enneagram work is I'm passionate to make sure others understand themselves from a gospel-centered perspective so that they can break free from shame self-condemnation and fear by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love forgiveness and freedom in Christ and so when I see people misusing the Enneagram you're mm-hmm. going to see this elephant start charging like, uh, no, stop, you know, because I want people to thrive off of this and not use it as a tool that's going to be harmful. And right. so anyway, his art, even the artwork was like yeah. masterful. Um, I just loved it. Yeah. So there's good. a if you're line. If you're out there and you haven't listened to it, go to your own private, like listen to it in the car by yourself. Oh, by yourself. You just have to have a moment to listen to yours at least the first time by yourself. There's a line in the, in the two that says, um, it's something about, uh, let me help you, but I'm going to put my mask on first. And it wrecked me. I mean, wrecked me. Like, I'm like, how does he know? How does, how does he know that's what I do? And there's another line that says, maybe one day I'll finally get around to helping myself. And I was just like, Oh, I'm not an easy cry either. But it was like, wow. Like it was right up in, in my personal business and I was not expecting it at all. Um, I'm going to check out the artwork. I had not seen the artwork per se. So oh, yeah, you'll have to look at yours. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> You're not going to give me like a sneak preview. Just go look it up. It's <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah, it's, Cause it, there's always a boy and a girl and an animal and for uh-huh. the seven, the boy and a girl and a monkey jumping for joy through the trees. Like they're having fun going from thing to thing to thing. And it was, yeah, it's just masterful. Very cool. Very cool. Right. Well, we've, uh, we've enjoyed it. So the book comes out um, in October, but you told us that they can get advanced copies. Where can they get the advanced copies or pre-order it? Yeah. So obviously they can pre-order it through Amazon, Books a Million, all the, the places if they want, whichever is their favorite. Um, so it's called Becoming Us, using the Enneagram to create a thriving gospel-centered marriage, but you can use it for any relationship um, in your life. Um, but the Kindle and the auto... Uh, book is out right now. So if you're like, I just can't wait and I got to get to that resource section in the back and learn all things about my type and my friend's type or my spouse's type or whoever it is, it's already available. Awesome. Cool. 
Uh, and I got one, one just off the topic question because I'm a nerd like that. How much fun is Annie F. Downs? Like I love her podcast and you did the whole <laughs> yeah. Indie of the Summer with her. Like how much of a good time is she? Oh man, she's so fun. She, and she's so gracious too. I mean, it's a, it's a combination of it all, right? Like she has the fun, but the seriousness of a healthy seven, which is just a delight to be around. Absolutely. We, we are a delight. I'm not going <laughs> to, we're not <laughs> You sevens are a delight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got one, one final question we'd like to ask all of our guests. Um, it's really because we're based on a college campus, but we know that college is more than classes. So what is the greatest lesson you learned in college outside of the classroom? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what comes to my mind is we were a part, so I got married when I was 20. So we were right in the middle of college. We were with a group called the Navigators, which is a college ministry yeah. for those that aren't familiar with it. And they put us in, um, like we kind of almost had to have homework that we had to do is that the subject was, what is the gospel? That was it. And you could take it wherever you wanted from there. And I just dove headlong into what is the gospel? Like not just the word, but everything about it. And that was when I really started to feel the freedom of who I was in Christ and recognizing the pursuit of Christ for my life, that I mattered so much to him that he would leave his throne and come live a really hard life, be beaten and die and then rise again, all because I matter to him and I couldn't rescue myself. And so just to see someone like a hound of heaven pursue me in that way was more freeing than I could have ever imagined or put words to. So that was definitely the biggest lesson that I learned in college. That's great. It's amazing. Awesome. Well, Beth, I mean, we're, we're kind of out of time, but I wish we had like 12 more hours, but uh, I just want to <laughs> yeah. say thank you for being on the show. It has been such a joy and as we say here at the Collective Co., you always have a seat at the table. And uh, we're excited about what God is doing through you and in you and in your life. And we look forward to great conversations ahead. Um, but again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Collective Co. podcast. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review, and share this on social media so this content can reach other great leaders? Yeah.